CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Manuela Riedo. Before we begin, just a brief content warning. This episode contains references and description of sexual assault, which may be triggering for some listeners. For help and resources, please see the show notes. Manuela Riedo was born on November 5th, 1989. She was the only child of Hans Peter and Arlette Riedo and lived in Hinterkaplan, just outside of Bern. Switzerland. Manuela was an enthusiastic and busy young woman. After finishing her primary schooling, she attended a commercial college in Freiburg and was also undertaking an apprenticeship in sales. She had two days of college to attend per week. Alongside this, Manuela worked part-time for her local government as well. Manuela wanted to study languages to become a tour guide, and over the summer of 2007, she'd applied to do a hotel management and hospitality degree in a college in the United States, where she would also work on further perfecting her English. In advance of college exams, Manuela travelled with a group of 43 other students to Galway, where they were enrolled for an intensive two-week English language course. While in the city, The teens stayed with host families and were joined by two of their teachers for the duration of their stay. Manuela was one of two students staying with families in the Renmore area of Galway, a mature residential area to the east of the city. She was attending a language centre in Bridge Mills in the centre of the city with six others. The rest of her group was split between two other language colleges, also in Galway city centre. On Monday the 8th of October, 2007, Manuela left her host family's home in Renmore Park, sometime between 7 and half 7 in the evening. She was headed into Galway City to a meeting with other students and their teachers at the King's Head pub. It was a standard kind of meetup between the students and the teachers to make sure everyone had settled in and to iron out any problems that might have arisen. 
It wasn't compulsory. And so when Manuela never made it to the pub, it wasn't overly concerning. However, the following morning, Manuela's body was spotted by a passerby on an embankment below a pedestrian walkway that followed the course of the railway from Renmore to the train station in the city centre. It was bordered on its other side by a marshy lagoon called Loch Italia. The teen had been in Galway only three days. Manuela was reported missing at lunchtime that day. Her teachers had noted her missing that morning and had tried to ring her on her mobile, but there was no answer. Worry set in when classmates said that they'd texted the teen and got no response. After her teachers heard the news that a body had been found, they went to the nearby Garda station. Gardi cordoned off the line from Kant Station to its borders along the Renmore estate. Officers from the Technical Bureau combed the entire area right up to the borders of Loch Italia, and Professor Mary Cassidy spent three hours on the scene that afternoon. Manuela's body was identified by teachers that she'd been travelling with, and she was brought to Galway University Hospital for a post-mortem. Detectives and officers spoke to people who regularly walked along the path into the city and began house-to-house inquiries. Gurdi notified Swiss authorities who contacted Manuela's parents back in Hinterkapellen, and they were informed that their daughter had died. At two in the morning, Swiss police arrived at their home to break the news that Manuela had been murdered. When she died, Manuela's 18th birthday was just weeks away on the 5th of November. The investigation into Manuela's death began quickly, and 50 Gardi were tasked to the case. All of the host families were interviewed. On Thursday evening, a recent photo of Manuela was released to the public. It was one taken on the trip, of the teenager standing in the Clada, an area to the west side of Galway City, and the site of an old fishing village. A prayer service was held for the girl in Galway's Augustinian church that night too. Manuela's fellow students, teachers, members of host families and the wider public attended and a book of condolences was opened for her. The vigil was held at the request of the Galway Language Centre. The people of Galway were horrified and disgusted that a young girl visiting the city could be murdered like this. Manuela's parents stayed in Switzerland, too distraught to travel to Galway at the time, and Swiss authorities liaised with Irish to arrange for the return of the other students to their homes. The other 42 teenagers, distraught, were brought to stay together in a hotel. They had been meant to stay a full two weeks in Galway until the 20th of October, but they left that Friday. When they returned home, counselling was arranged for them. On Saturday, Superintendent Tom Curley, who was leading the investigation, said that the students had been very helpful in piecing together Manuela's movements over her last days, and that he was satisfied with how work on the investigation was progressing. On Sunday, across parishes in Galway, an appeal for information was read out at masses. They were asking for anyone who had been near or between Renmore and Kant Station between half seven on the evening of Monday the 8th and half nine on the morning of Tuesday the 9th to contact Gardi at Mill Street Station. Gardi issued a description of Manuela. At the time of her death, she was five foot four, of average build with brown hair to her shoulders. 
She was last seen wearing a long grey and black coat over a red cardigan with a grey top. She had grey jeans on with black suede boots and a large black handbag with cherry patterns on it. Superintendent Tom Curley told the press that forensic analysis was being carried out on items found near Manuela's body. Samples were taken during the post-mortem and also sent for examination. It was confirmed that Manuela had died from asphyxiation. Before they left, all of Manuela's classmates had voluntarily given DNA samples. Superintendent Curley said the DNA evidence linked to Manuela's death had not yet been identified. They would be comparing it to the profiles they had on file from cases of recent sexual offenders, as Ireland does not have a DNA database. The superintendent said that they might have to extend voluntary sample collection if no match was found within the suspect pool. The guardie also said that there was no reason to link Manuela's killing with two recent sexual assaults that had occurred in the area, or with violent assaults which had occurred in nearby Athlone. However, Superintendent Curley added, quote, but I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't examine everything, end quote. The following day, the appeal to the public was issued again, this time with the Garda spokesperson asking the public to take note of people they knew who had a change in behaviour in the last week, saying, quote, such changes may include an increased consumption of alcohol or drugs, missed work appointments, or unscheduled leave or sick leave, leaving the area for unexplained reasons, appearing unusually nervous or anxious to friends or co-workers, and finally, attempting to change their appearance by cutting their hair or shaving off facial hair, end quote. Police were anxious to speak to anyone who had been on the line between a quarter past seven and eight p.m., and said that they believed a number of witnesses had yet to come forward. Even those who had seen nothing but had been in the area were urged to come forward in order that Gardi could eliminate them from their inquiries. On Tuesday the 16th, Manuela's body was repatriated to Switzerland, accompanied by a Swiss diplomat and Garda officers. Meanwhile, CCTV footage from around Galway city centre and Kant train station was being examined by the investigating team. Passengers who had alighted from the last train arriving from Dublin and Galway on the evening of the 8th were also interviewed as the train had arrived during the period of time Gardie believed was critical to their investigation. Taxi drivers who had picked up fares during this time were also asked for statements. From the information gathered during these actions, Gardie became more certain that the attack on Manuela had occurred shortly after she left her host family home. There were a number of sightings of Manuela during the evening in the city centre, but when Gardie looked through the CCTV footage, Manuela was not spotted. It seems that these sightings were mistaken. She had never made it to the city. Superintendent Tom Curley said on Thursday the 18th, quote, We are confident from the evidence we have so far that she went missing on her way into town, end quote. On the morning of Thursday the 18th of October, two men and a woman were arrested by Gardie in Salt Hill at a quarter past seven in the morning. The two men were taken to a Garda station in Galway City, and the woman was brought to the station in Gort. Two hours later, a third man was arrested and was brought to Loch Ray Garda station. 
all of those arrested were described as being in their mid to late 20s. One of the men was reported at the time as being 27 years old, and he had been arrested in connection with the murder. Two of the others were held on suspicion of withholding information. One of the men and the woman were thought to be brother and sister. The Irish Times reported that detectives on the case had been searching records of offenders with a history of sexual assault based in Galway, and believed that they had made a breakthrough in the inquiry. According to the Evening Herald, the arrests had been made after Gardy received results of forensic tests in the case, and Gardy had been surveilling these people while they awaited the results of those tests. A number of houses and a laneway near Dr. Mannix Road were searched by Gardy. Reporter Lorna Siggins for the Irish Times wrote that it was understood police may have been looking for clothing and an item which had been used as a weapon in the attack. The Garda sub-aqua unit moved in to begin searches of the lagoon next to where Manuela was found. The woman and one of the men being held were released that night, with Gardy saying that a file was being prepared for the Director of Public Prosecutions. The two other men continued to be held in Galway Garda Station. That Thursday evening, Manuela's host family, city councillors and members of the public attended a special service of remembrance in Renmore Parish Church. During the service, 17 candles were lit to represent Manuela's 17 years. The Swiss national flag and a bouquet of red roses were placed below the altar. The flowers were said to represent the sadness and grief of local people that something so awful had happened to the young girl in their city. The following morning, a man was charged with murder. 27-year-old Gerard Barry was from Merview, Galway City, with a current address across the city in Rahoon. He appeared before a special sitting of the Galway District Court that morning. As he was accompanied by Gardy into the courthouse, Barry was yelled and jeered at by a large crowd who had gathered ahead of his appearance there. The man struggled with the Gardy he was handcuffed to, and at one point the officers had to hold him against a wall as he tried to wrestle with them. The suspect yelled at them to stop pulling on him. Barry also, still while handcuffed, lunged at a photographer outside the court. The Evening Herald said that Barry was effectively dragged into the court and was described as remaining agitated and aggressive while he sat through the short hearing. Evidence of arrest was given and the court heard that when asked if he had any reply to the charge, Barry had just shaken his head. He was remanded in custody to Castlereagh Prison. Once again, as he was led out of the court, Gerard Barry was met by a crowd. At that point, it was about a hundred people strong. The crowd rushed towards the unmarked Garda car which was to take the accused away. It had been surrounded by an additional 30 Gardaí to try and maintain order. But as the car drove away, members of the crowd jeered and made attempts to hit the car. A few hours later, at the Reformed Church in Volan, Manuela Riedo's funeral took place. The church quickly filled with hundreds of mourners and many had to be accommodated in a separate building. Manuela was described as a priceless treasure, a girl who loved music and dance and who was popular and friendly to everyone. Sobbing was heard throughout the two-hour service. Manuela's parents sat in the front of the church and did not speak. 
Mrs. Rayado turned only once to watch the congregation file in behind her to take their own seats. The Irish ambassador, Mr. James Sharkey, was present at the service and said, quote, Nothing can be said to ease this pain and grief. Our hearts are with the poor parents. All of Ireland mourns with them, and it would be wrong of me to go beyond that because words cannot heal this terrible wound. The feeling here is one of deep distress, a sense of devastation and loss for one so innocent, so young, and so beautiful. End quote. The celebrant Barbara Kugelman commented on the Irish contingent at the service and the sorrow expressed by them. She said, quote, We pray for all those in Ireland and those here. Let them be connected. God does not leave them alone in their mourning. End quote. After the service, hundreds of balloons were released outside the church in Manuela's memory. On Friday, the 26th of October, Gerard Barry made his second appearance in the district court at Harristown in Castlereagh, County Roscommon. He arrived in court with his head covered. Superintendent Sean Ward told the court that there was still a considerable amount of work to be completed in the case, including the examination of forensic evidence. He applied for Barry to be remanded in custody once more. A period of 15 days was granted. This was extended once more until the 17th of December. In the meantime, on the 19th of November, Barry appeared at the district court in relation to an assault on a Garda, being drunk in public and a breach of the peace on the 31st of March 2007 in Air Square. On Tuesday the 8th of January 2008, Hans-Peter and Arlesh Riedo finally made a visit to Galway at the invitation of the Gardaí. They were to speak with the investigators on a case and discuss its details. In the course of the trip, the couple also visited the spot alongside Loch Italia, where their daughter's body was found. Hans-Peter and Arlette were brought to the walkway between the railway and the lagoon by Garda inspectors and liaison personnel, and walked along the line until they reached the place where Manuela had been found. The Riedos laid flowers by a tree close to where their daughter's body was recovered from. They spent 20 minutes in the area, despite heavy wind and rain. Privacy was important to the Riedos. The press were told that Manuela's parents would not be speaking to them at any point during their trip. But a statement from the Riedos was issued on the day of their visit to the crime scene through a spokesperson from the health service. It read in part, quote, Many people who we do not know have written to us, have had masses said, and have given us flowers for Manuela. We would like to thank you and say that it has helped us greatly through this difficult time. We extend our gratitude to all the people who have made our visit to Ireland possible. We would also like to thank all the Irish people who attended Manuela's funeral mass in Switzerland, and all who have lit candles and prayed for us. We hope and pray that for Manuela, justice will be given. End quote. The following week, Gerard Barry was back before the district court. The prosecuting Garda asked for the court to remand Barry in custody for a further period of two weeks, as Gardi were preparing to make recommendations to the DPP in relation to additional charges. Barry's solicitor asked for Gardi to give evidence in order to explain this request, as his client had been in custody for three months. Detective Garda Tony Reedy told Judge Jeffrey Brown 
that the investigation in this case was 80% forensics-based, and they were awaiting the report from Forensic Science Laboratory, which was expected to be completed the following week. Other areas which required work in the case could not be completed until that report had been received. A file would then be sent on to the DPP. And so Barry was remanded in custody for a further two weeks. In mid-February, this file was completed and sent on, with Harristown District Court being informed that there could be over 200 witnesses in the case. On the 31st of March, Jared Barry and his legal team were served the book of evidence in the case at Galway District Court, and he was sent forward to face trial. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. There are literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. So if you're tired of the same old puzzle games, start playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends has something new every day. There are always new levels, events, and challenges to keep you entertained. Best Fiends challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's a casual game, so it doesn't stress you out, which is a good thing right now. I love that every time I open the game, there's always something new going on, whether it's a new challenge, a fun monthly event, or just new levels. I just unlocked a new creature, Wilbur the Dock Beetle. I upgraded him, so he's now rocket-powered. I'm also working my way through the Polar Expedition Challenge. It's really great to have a change of pace from the day-to-day grind of reading articles on gruesome murders. Best Fiends is so colourful and sweet, and it really ticks all the boxes in that regard for me. Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to Settings, My Friends, and entering the code 193227. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game, so join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends, without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp, and Mens Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash mens. The very best time to begin looking after your mental health is right now. I remember that each time I've decided to dive back in and do some work like this, I've had a strong feeling of anxiety. There are so many choices and so much effort that goes into those first steps before you've even started therapy. It can be quite daunting to start off with, but BetterHelp makes starting that journey so much easier. BetterHelp matches you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs, and you can start your online professional counseling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that might not be available in your area, and BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. You can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash M-E-N-S and join the over one million people 
people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Men's Rail listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. Jared Barry's trial began in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin on Monday the 9th of March 2009, before Mr Justice Barry White and a jury of six men and six women. He faced a charge of murder as well as theft of a mobile phone and a camera. Barry pleaded not guilty to all charges. Hans Peter and Arlash Riedo came to Dublin for the trial, joined by Manuela's aunt, two of her teachers and a school friend. It was 17 months since Manuela's body was discovered in Galway. The following day, Barry changed his plea in relation to the theft of the phone and camera to guilty. Then, Ms. Isabel Kennedy, senior counsel, gave the opening statement on behalf of the state. She said the jury would hear that DNA found at the crime scene linked Jared Barry to the attack and murder of Manuela. Her camera was found in Barry's bedroom, and a mobile phone which Barry had sold was traced back to Manuela. Cell site data would also be presented to the court for consideration. First, the man who discovered Manuela's body gave evidence. Sam Bearden described walking to work on the 9th of October 2007. As he made his way along the line, he noticed a rucksack on a muddy path in the middle of what he described as a clump of bushes. Nearby, there was a purse on the ground. Then he saw something that was pale in colour, and when he looked closely, Mr. Bearden realised that what he could see was the body of a female. There was a coat covering the upper half of the body and the woman's head. Mr. Bearden called 999. He also told the court that he had walked the same route the evening before, but had seen nothing at that spot. A local doctor had responded to the scene alongside emergency services, and Dr. Dennis Higgins took the stand, stating he arrived there at a quarter to eleven that morning. He observed Manuela's body lying face up on the ground. Her right leg was bent at the knee. The doctor noted her pupils were fixed and dilated and that she had no pulse. There was an abrasion on the left side of Manuela's forehead and bruises on her neck. Dr. Higgins pronounced Manuela dead at five minutes past eleven. Then one of Manuela's teachers who was supervising the group of students described the language trip that they'd been on. Mr. Christian Klingle said the group of 43 students had arrived in Galway on Saturday the 6th of October, and the teens had had their accommodation arranged by the various language schools that they'd be attending over the following two weeks. On Monday the 8th, Mr. Klingle met a colleague for lunch at the King's Head. Some of the students also arrived and joined them. He had stayed in the pub with the students until 11pm, but Manuela was not with them that evening. The following day, Mr. Klingle tried to contact Manuela on her phone but got no answer. Text messages he sent to her didn't go through. Mr. Klingle reported Manuela missing around lunchtime that day. Then Mr. Klingle's colleague, Kimberly Kramer Birchke, told the court that she had been informed that Manuela had not turned up for her lessons on Tuesday morning. 
Later that night, she was brought to University Hospital Galway and had identified the body, found near the line as that of her student, Manuela Rado. On the second day of the trial, Chief State Pathologist Mary Cassidy gave evidence of Manuela's injuries and cause of death. Manuela's neck had been compressed due to contact, she said. This had possibly occurred from Manuela being grabbed in a headlock-type manoeuvre. The marks on Manuela's neck were suggestive of strangulation. There was also what was described as a gaping wound on Manuela's left groin, which Mary Cassidy said was unusual and was inflicted after her death with a sharp object, likely a knife. Additionally, Professor Cassidy had noted a bump and a laceration on the back of Manuela's head, which indicated that she had been struck or that her head had struck a surface. Further injuries to Manuela's face could have been due to minor blows to the head. There was no evidence of a struggle in the course of the attack. During the post-mortem, superficial lacerations and abrasions were noted on Manuela's genitals, though Mary Cassidy said that there was no evidence of internal injuries. Journalists in the court described how Hans Peter was racked with sobs as this evidence was offered. He and Arlesh were accompanied by a translator throughout, who had been writing notes of the testimony for Manuela's parents as the case was ongoing but Manuela's father was sobbing so much during the pathologist's evidence that there was no need to take anything down. He wouldn't be able to see it. A friend of the murdered teen also gave evidence to the court. Azaria Maurer was staying with the host family also in the Renmore area, and the two girls had walked into the city and back together along the shortcut on Sunday afternoon. They'd gone into the King's Head pub that evening too, During that outing, Manuela had not spoken to anyone outside of their group of students. The two girls had walked together into Galway along the line on Monday morning. Later that day, they'd gone back to their now familiar spot at the King's Head. There, Manuela had not spoken to any strangers, nor had she had anything to drink. They walked back to Renmore together that afternoon again, with plans to meet up later in the pub, after they'd both eaten dinner with their host families. That was the last time Azaria saw Manuela. Azaria had gone back into the city, but she didn't see Manuela at the pub. Azaria recalled for the court that she had texted her friend that night, but got no response. On Tuesday morning, Azaria had rang Manuela, but got a message instead, saying that the number was no longer in service. The teenager also told the court that she was aware that Manuela had a boyfriend back in Switzerland, and Manuela had a picture of him as the screensaver of her mobile phone. Azaria had cried softly at points through her evidence, recalling the last moments she had spent with her friend. Martin Tierney, one of the adults from Manuela's host family, then took the stand and said he had shown her a map of the Galway area on Monday, the evening before her death. He'd also advised her not to use the line as a shortcut into the city. After this, some Garda evidence was heard. Garda Shane Curran described having been at the crime scene on October 9th. While examining it, he had come across a used condom nearby, which was snagged on a bush. Further, he'd found a button from Manuela's coat on the path at the top of the embankment, with one button having been noted as missing from her coat. Detective Garda Curran had also searched Jared Barry's home address the day of the defendant's arrest 
and during the course of this search, the guard had found a camera in a bedroom, the one used by Gerard Barry. On Thursday the 12th of March, the court heard from a senior engineer at Meteor Mobile Communications, Fergus O'Toole. He had provided Gerard Barry's phone records from the night of Manuela's murder to Gardee. Between 6.56pm and 7.12pm, three texts and a phone call from Barry's phone had pinged towers in the Renmore area. Calls from his phone pinged a tower at Loch Italia at 7.19 and then at 8.18 too. Then, Detective Garda Michael Moran gave evidence of a statement made by the defendant on the 16th of October 2007. Barry had initially declined to give Garda any information about his whereabouts the night of Manuela's death, but eventually he did agree to make a statement in writing. This statement said that on the 8th, Jared Barry had woken that day at about 3pm and his brother Kevin and brother-in-law Dennis had called to the house sometime in the following hour. Barry was staying with his sister at her home at the time. The three men had then driven around in Dennis's car and had been in Salt Hill, just north of Galway City, between 4 and 7 that evening. They'd all gone to Dennis's house then. There, Jared Barry said he'd eaten something and watched some TV before Dennis dropped him home after 10pm. Barry said he had not been in or around Galway City that night. He hadn't walked the path along the railway, nor had he ever met Manuela. The accused told the guardie at the time that it had been three weeks since he had used the line as a shortcut walk to his mother's house in Renmore. The accused's brother, Kevin, also took the stand, telling the court that he had been home the afternoon of the 8th until he was collected by Dennis. Kevin was also asked by lawyers what his brother was wearing that evening and he said that Jared had on a red jacket and was carrying a plastic bag. On the stand, Dennis said that that day he had been driving around with Kevin when the two men received a call from the defendant. They'd picked Jared Barry up outside a supermax at the bottom of Shop Street at around 8pm. According to this witness, Jared had appeared normal at the time. The court was then shown CCTV taken from Mangard Street in the centre of Galway City and the footage was described by Garda Sean Durkin. He pointed out a man walking towards the junction of Cross Street at 8.27pm and identified this person as the defendant. He was wearing a red jacket, a black hat, and was carrying a plastic bag. Ten days after Manuela's murder, Jared Barry was arrested and was interviewed by Gardee. Detective Sergeant Tom Malloy gave evidence that Barry was shown a still taken from the CCTV. Barry said that the man wasn't him. The figure in the picture was taller, and Barry never owned a red jacket or a baseball cap. The defendant went on to deny that a camera found between the bed and the mattress in his room belonged to him and said, quote, I never saw that camera in my life, end quote. The next day, the court was told more about the used condom that had been found snagged in a bush at the scene of the crime and that a full single male DNA profile had been made from its contents. Dr. Maureen Smith from the Forensic Science Laboratory took the stand and explained that she had examined four swabs taken by Gardee from Jared Barry. 
The DNA profile from these swabs matched the profile taken from the semen inside the used condom. Dr. Smith also testified that a further examination of material on the outside of the condom had provided a mixed DNA profile, meaning that the DNA of more than one person was present there. This mixed profile contained all the elements of DNA from Jared Barry and Manuela Rado. There were no elements present that did not match the defendant or the victim in this case. A second employee of the Forensic Science Laboratory told the court that he had examined the button missing from Manuela's coat. There were ripped threads apparent on the coat and button. Detective Garda Seamus Burke had asked Barry about the DNA present on the scene during an interview with the accused ten days after Manuela was found dead. Burke told the court that Barry had said to him that he had no idea how the DNA was in the condom found there. When he was asked for further explanation, Gerard Barry asserted that he hadn't worn a condom at all in the previous five years, so he had no idea how his DNA had ended up there. Then the court heard from Mr. Mark Keady. He had bought a Sony Ericsson mobile phone from Mr. Barry on the 17th of October 2007 for 30 euro. This interaction had happened at his home in Rossen Glass, Rahoon. That evening, Mr. Keady had gone out to Spittle and stopped by a local butcher's where he sold the phone on to an employee there, John Flaherty. This was confirmed on the stand by Mr. Flaherty, who gave evidence that he had seen messages on the phone that were not in English. Mr. Flaherty had passed the phone on to his brother, Robert. Eventually, the phone was handed into the guardie by another family member when they heard that the police were looking for it. After this, Manuela's mother, Arlette Riedo, took the stand. Ms. Riedo related that Manuela had bought a Sony Ericsson mobile phone about a week before she left for her two-week trip to Galway. Ms. Riedo had been shown the phone handed in by the Flaherty's when she and her husband made their trip to Galway in January of 2008 and confirmed that it was the one that Manuela had bought. They had also been shown an Olympus camera, which they identified as a gift that Manuela had received from her uncle. Next, Garda Geraldine Doherty gave evidence that she had been given a printout of a photo that was taken by the Olympus camera. She had tried to identify where the picture had been taken and established that it depicted Russell Glass taken from the entrance to Miller's Lane in West Galway City. She took pictures of the view herself and these matched the image taken from the camera found in the defendant's bed. Louise Barry, Gerard's sister, testified that her brother was staying with her in her home in Rossum Glass in October of 2007. She confirmed that Gardy had shown her CCTV footage of a man walking down a street wearing a red jacket and a cap. Ms. Barry had confirmed to Gardy that her brother had a jacket that was similar to the one seen on the man in the tape. Court then adjourned, which was a longer break than was usual for a weekend due to the national holiday on the 17th. On Wednesday the 18th of March, when court resumed, the defence of Gerard Barry began. The accused took the stand himself and answered questions put to him by his lead barrister, Martin Giblin, senior counsel. 
Barry's account of what had occurred on the evening of Manuela's death had changed drastically from what he had told Gardi during his interviews and after his arrest. In this new narrative, Gerard Barry said that he had met Manuela near a shop in Renmore just after 7pm that evening. She'd stopped to ask him the time and he told her. According to Barry, they got to talking and he'd asked Manuela where she was from, how long she was in Ireland for, and if she was doing any sightseeing. Manuela had said she had to make her way into the city centre to meet friends, and Barry told her about a shortcut up to the line. He'd walked with her along a grassy cut-through or track, and at its end pointed out the way up the embankment towards the pedestrianised path to the teenager. Then she'd gone between the gap in the bushes. After this, Barry had sat down and began to roll a joint. But then, according to the defendant, Manuela had come back. She'd asked him, was he not heading into town, and then asked about the joint. He'd offered her some, but Manuela said no. They'd started kissing, and Barry testified that they'd then both spread out their coats on the ground and they'd had sex. At one point, Barry had asked Manuela if she was cold, but Manuela had said it got a lot colder in Switzerland. Then Manuela had said she'd better go meet with her friends. Barry said he'd tried to convince her to stay, and as Manuela leaned forward to get up, he grabbed her from behind. With that, Manuela had gone limp and slumped over. The defendant told the court that he had panicked at that point. Manuela was not responding. He'd covered her with a coat and put a rock on it so it wouldn't come away. He tossed Manuela's clothing into bushes. When he'd thrown Manuela's bag, the phone and camera had fallen out, and he admitted to taking these. On the stand, Barry said he couldn't explain why he'd taken the items, nor why he hadn't called 999. He was in a state of panic, he said. Afterwards, when he was being interviewed by Gardi, Barry had denied all knowledge of Manuela and her death in the hopes that the whole situation would, quote-unquote, go away. On cross-examination, Jared Barry was pointedly and vigorously questioned by Isabel Kennedy. She asked him to explain the presence of the button torn from Manuela's coat on the path at the line, but Barry said he had no explanation for this. Miss Kennedy continued, quote, Could it be explained that you met her on that walkway and dragged her over the wall? End quote. Barry said that that was not what had happened. He had the same answer when confronted with evidence of hairs being found snagged in bushes on the embankment. Barry couldn't say if Manuela had died immediately when he put his arm around her neck. He agreed that the hold could be described as a headlock and that Manuela's face had gone red. He also had no explanation for how Manuela had gotten the laceration or bruises on the back of her scalp and suggested that these might have happened when she flopped to the ground. He denied having slapped her about the head. He denied forcing her to undress at the bottom of the embankment. He denied using a knife. Ms. Kennedy asked him about the wound found on Manuela's groin, which had likely been inflicted by a knife. Barry said that he knew nothing at all about that, and he hadn't caused the injury. He also had no idea how the injuries observed around Ms. Rado's vaginal area had occurred. Ms. Kennedy said, quote, I'm suggesting that you attacked her, murdered her, end quote. 
but Mr. Barry continued to insist that Manuela's death had been an accident and that he had not meant to cause her any harm. After this, Professor Jack Crane, the state pathologist for Northern Ireland, appeared as a rebuttal witness for the defence. He was there to question in particular the conclusions that had been drawn by Mary Cassidy during her examinations in the case. Professor Crane told the court he disagreed with Mary Cassidy's conclusion in relation to the wound observed on Miss Rado's groin. It was his opinion that it couldn't be excluded as a possibility that the wound was caused by a predatory animal. After this, the jury heard the closing statements in the case. Isabel Kennedy said Gerard Barry had lied to the guardie and fabricated a story of where he had been on the night of Manuela's death. DNA and his phone records placed him at the scene. He had held Manuela in a headlock long enough to kill her. The evidence was consistent with guilt that Gerard Barry had killed Manuela and there was no other credible explanation for the events which resulted in Manuela's death. Martin Giblin argued that the evidence as it was did not go so far as to indicate that his client had intended to kill or cause serious harm. This was an accident and Gerard Barry accepted he was responsible for it, but Manuela's death had not been intentional. He'd done little to nothing to distance himself from the crime afterwards and had even taken and kept an item from the scene of Manuela's death. The defence barrister described his client as a quote-unquote extremely incompetent individual. As we see so often, the case came down to whether or not the accused had the mens rea, the intent to kill. Mr. Giblin said that Jared Barry did not, that the proper verdict in this case was manslaughter. The jury were sent out to deliberate and that evening were sent home for the night. On Saturday morning, the jury returned and very quickly completed their deliberations. In total, they had discussed the case for two hours and 38 minutes. The six men and six women found Jared Barry guilty of the murder of Manuela Riedo. Barry made no reaction when the verdict was read out. Ahead of the sentencing portion of the hearing that day, Manuela's father, Hans Peter, gave an emotional victim impact statement. He described Manuela for the court in great detail, explaining how selfless and caring Manuela was and that she had hoped to work in hospitality and tourism in future. This was a future he would never get to see, and Manuela was deeply loved and deeply missed by everyone who had known her throughout her brief life. Then Detective Superintendent P.J. Durkin told Mr. Justice White about Barry's background. The defendant had a long list of convictions and had a history of trouble with the law. This included a five-year sentence for a violent assault which occurred in Eyre Square and had resulted in a man's death in 1996. He'd also served a two-year sentence for sexual assault arising from a complaint brought forward by an ex-partner. In October of 1998, Barry had been charged in relation to a burglary at an elderly man's house where the man was assaulted and lost sight in his one good eye. Barry had also racked up a number of driving offences and drugs charges. He had been sent to both Trinity House and St. Patrick's while he was a teenager. Detective Superintendent Durkin agreed with Barry's senior counsel that he came from a dysfunctional family 
and that there was a case to be made that the authorities should have intervened with Mr. Barry at a younger age, implying that the eight children in the family should have perhaps been taken into care. This notion was confirmed after court adjourned by a source close to the investigation who said that the Barry home was violent and the children in the house had also been exposed to sexual violence at a young age. Mr. Justice Barry White acknowledged Gerard Barry's dysfunctional family and difficult upbringing and said, quote, I trust you have not been unmoved by the evidence of Mr. Riedo of the devastating effect of your criminal behaviour on the family of your victim, end quote. Justice White handed down the mandatory sentence and also determined that Mr. Barry would serve two concurrent five-year sentences for the theft of Manuela's phone and camera. Addressing the Riedos directly, Barry White said, quote, I hope that you have seen the better side of the Irish nation. I trust you will find it in your heart to forgive the Irish nation for the grave injustice you have suffered, end quote. After the sentencing, on the steps of the court, Mr. Riedo thanked the Gardaí and the Swiss Embassy for their assistance. He also thanked the people who had sent flowers and cards, and the City of Dublin, for putting them up in the two-week period they attended the trial. He continued, quote, We couldn't ask for a better daughter, and this is why the pain was so hard for us. The defendant said many things about Manuela, and they were all lies. It was very hard, very difficult, to hear these claims in court, end quote. In the month following the conclusion of the trial, Manuela's parents, along with the Switzerland-based Irish publican, set up the Manuela Riedo Foundation with the stated purpose to help victims of rape and sexual assault. On Friday the 22nd of May 2009, the inquest into Manuela's death was held in Galway. The evidence heard at court was gone through and Mary Cassidy again gave evidence of her findings at the post-mortem examination. The jury returned a verdict of unlawful death due to asphyxia caused by manual strangulation and, further, made a recommendation that, quote, no student should walk the line alone at any time, end quote. The inquest had heard that the route had been cleared and fitted with public lighting since Manuela's murder. Hans-Peter and Arlette Riedo did not attend the inquest. The mayor of Galway had, however. He said, quote, Galway is a young person's city. If you walk down Shop Street and Key Street, the majority of young people are students and they come to Galway in the hope that they will be received with open arms. We send a message of deepest sympathy to all the people of Switzerland, to Manuela's family and friends, end quote. The coroner, Dr. Martin McLaughlin, expressed his deepest sympathy to Manuela's parents and said that this was one of the worst tragedies to have happened in Galway. The week after the coroner's inquest, Gerard Barry was back in court. On the 28th of May 2009, Barry appeared before the Central Criminal Court, sitting at Cloverhill Prison in Dublin. There, he pleaded guilty to both orally and anally raping a then 21-year-old French woman near the GAA club at Walter Mackin Road in Galway in August of 2007. This attack occurred less than two months before the attack on Manuela. Up to this point, a trial had been set to begin on June 22nd, as Barry had maintained a not-guilty plea in relation to these charges. 
A hearing was called early when he decided to change his plea. Mr Justice Paul Carney remanded Jared Barry back to custody to face sentencing at a later date and ordered him declared as a sex offender. At proceedings to hear submissions regarding the sentencing on the 20th of July, more details regarding that attack were heard. The French woman who had been studying at NUIG and was working part-time as a waitress had been walking home from a trad session in a pub in the city in the early hours of the 16th of August, as she had been unable to get a taxi. As she walked, she noticed a man following behind her, and then she was suddenly grabbed from behind by the hair. She felt what she believed to be a knife placed under her throat and was then dragged to the pitches at St. James's GAA Club. Her attacker raped her, threatened to kill her, and then raped her again. He told her that he knew where she lived, and if she went to the police, he would kill her. He said she wasn't to run because he would catch her. When someone else passed by, he forced her to pretend to be his girlfriend. Before the man made off, he took the last of her money from her. The morning after the attack, the 21-year-old went to the A&E at the university hospital. She was so distraught by what had happened, she had to write it down for the staff. She couldn't bring herself to say the words. After this, she went to the Gardie to make a report. On the same night of the attack on the French student, Gardie received a complaint from Jared Barry's ex-partner. The woman said that on August 16th, at 2.25am, Barry had assaulted her. Gardie realised that the two attacks had occurred in the same area, with the assault on Barry's ex taking place after the rape of the French woman. Gardie arrested Barry at his parents' house and seized a top from the house, which had visible bloodstains on it. It was noted by Gardie that Jared Barry's clothes matched the description of the man who had attacked the French student. Barry was arrested and questioned in relation to the rape on the 18th of August, but Gardie took nothing of evidential value from that interview. While he was in custody, the French victim had tentatively identified him from a distance on the street. But he refused to answer questions and changed his mind about participating in an identity parade. He also refused to give a blood sample, but did agree to a mouth swab. Gardy were unable to charge him at that time and he was released. He then appeared in Galway District Court on the 19th of August, charged with the assault on his ex and a breach of a protection order. Gardy opposed bail, but it was granted. And so, Jared Barry had been out on bail when he had attacked and killed Manuela Riedo. The court also heard that on the 12th of December 2007, a DNA match was made between the sample given by Jared Barry and forensic evidence gathered by Gardie from the 21-year-old victim's body. Barry first appeared in court on charges in relation to this attack on the 9th of April 2008. The victim in this rape case, the French student, had given in a victim impact statement to be read for the court by senior counsel Paul Burns for the prosecution. The woman had not returned from France for the proceedings. She said, quote, What can I say? I'm just another person on his list. He doesn't feel sorry or concerned about what he did to me. I wonder how he can sleep at night, eating, sleeping, breathing, listening to music and so on. 
He is not human or a man. He is a liar, a rapist, and a murderer. He has to be punished for what he did. End quote. The woman said that during the course of the attack, she was sure that she was going to die. Martin Giblin argued for his client, saying Barry had had a difficult life and pointed to his cooperation with Gardy by giving his DNA and his guilty plea in the matter. Mr. Giblin went on to say that when these acts were committed, Jared Barry had been under the influence of both drink and drugs. Mr. Giblin said his client had now had time to think about what he had done and deeply regretted his actions and their impact on the lives of others. Mr. Justice Paul Carney said he would need some time to consider the verdict in the case, and once again adjourned the procedure to do this. On Friday the 24th of July 2009, the judge delivered his decision. Justice Carney said, quote, I'm satisfied that given the facts of the offence, the effect on the victim and the accused continuing danger to society, there are exceptional circumstances which justify the imposition of the maximum penalty, notwithstanding the plea of guilty. He also noted Barry's, quote, extraordinary list of previous convictions, end quote, which included being involved in an assault ending in a man's death, before handing down two life sentences, one for each count of rape. The judge continued, quote, From the victim's description of the facts of the incident and the accused's previous record, I believe he is a person with the propensity to kill and rape, and is highly likely to do so again if given the opportunity, end quote. After the sentencing, Superintendent Tom Curley said, quote, Our thoughts are with his victims and his family at this stage. For the people of Galway, it's good to have him behind bars. Over a period of three months, he carried out some of the most vicious crimes. Galway is a safer place for everyone without him. End quote. In October of that year, 2009, Manuela's parents returned to Galway to mark the two year anniversary of her death. A concert to raise funds for the Manuela Reado Foundation was held in Salt Hill, and balloons were released on Ladies Beach to mark the occasion too. The Riedos were joined by the family of Colum Phelan, who had died in the unprovoked attack in Galway in 1996. Then, in March of 2010, Gerard Barry appeared in the district court to face charges arising from the complaint made against him by his former partner. This time, he pleaded not guilty to the assault and to breaching a protection order. The woman who went unnamed to protect the identity of her and Barry's then five-year-old child told the judge Mary Fahey that in August of 2007, Jared Barry had burst into her home at half past two in the morning. He had gained access to the house by climbing on top of the canopy over the front door and through her bedroom window. Once inside, Barry had jumped on top of her as she lay in bed and put his hands around her neck in an attempt to choke her. He was demanding money from her and said that the guardie had taken his car and he wanted it back. The struggle woke up their then two-year-old son and the woman grabbed the child and tried to escape. Barry then pushed her, causing her head to hit off her son's head. The woman said that Barry kept trying to push her and the child back into the bedroom but she eventually got away, ran down the stairs and out the front door, where she started to yell for help. At that point, Jared Barry left, but he threatened the woman as he did so, saying that he would kill both her and her child. Then, Jared Barry gave his side of the story, 
He told the court that he had come home late from a house party that night and his then-girlfriend had been angry because she hadn't been invited. Barry said the woman was never invited to the parties and she was annoyed, asking who he'd been with and calling the women at the party whores. They'd also argued about her not giving him his dole money and she'd taken the house key off him even though he was living there at the time. He alleged she was screaming and pulling her hair out, so we left. Barry also denied having gone over to his ex's mother's house on the 16th of August, breaching a protection order. Jared Barry was found guilty by Judge Mary Fahey of the assault and breach of the protection order. At that court appearance, Jared Barry was also entering a guilty plea to an assault on two Gardaí in Air Square on the 31st of March 2007, while they were in the process of arresting another man. In sentencing, Judge Fahey said it was her intention to hand down consecutive terms and that she wanted to ensure that these sentences would also be consecutive to the three concurrent life sentences Jared Barry was already serving, unless she was precluded from doing so by law. Barry was to serve six months for the assault on his ex and six months for the assault on his son. Two five-month consecutive sentences were handed down for the assaults on the Gardaí. He got two months for resisting arrest and another two months for the breach of the protection order, which was to be concurrent. The sentences added up to the maximum allowable term that could be imposed at the level of the district court. The sentences were affirmed during Barry's appeal to the circuit court in October of 2010. However, the judge there, Raymond Grork, ordered that the sentences be served concurrently with Barry's life terms. That same weekend, 120 balloons were released to mark the third anniversary of Manuela's death in remembrance of the girl who was described by her parents as their sunshine. A charity concert was also held in Manuela's honour by the Manuela Riedo Foundation Ireland, which raised funds for the Galway Rape Crisis Centre. Arlette Riedo told the press, quote, What started out as a tragedy for our family and the loss of our only child has turned into something beautiful and positive. We hope many young people continue to get the help they need and to have the future that Manuela will never have. End quote. The Riedos continued to make frequent trips to Galway and Ireland, saying that it was the last place that was home for their daughter, and they feel a closeness to her here. Today, the Manuela Riedo Foundation help to fund rape crisis centres, education focused on sexual violence prevention with teenagers, supply additional funding to health service crisis centres, and provide advocacy for children and families after abuse, and have hosted a conference for the rape crisis centres. In Ireland, Manuela Riedo will forever be remembered. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Kay Myers, Anna Cohen, Eve Cooney, Claire Boyle, Emma Norris, Kay Mack, Patricia Arkzinski, Tanya Molesky, Megan Cox, Brendan B., Denise Smith, and Fergal O'Connor. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. 
So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So check them out in the show notes and get yourself a discount while you're at it. Please stay tuned for the featured podcast promo at the end of this episode. It's from Cautionary Tales, where economist Tim Hartford regales us with stories from the past, which serve as lessons for today. I'm a huge fan, so give it a listen and go subscribe. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Patricia Arkzinski. Patricia Arkzinski. 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 Patricia Arkzinski. Zinski. Patricia. Patricia Arkzinski. Patricia Arkzinski. Zinski. Patricia Ark. Patricia Arks. Patricia Arks. Arzing. Arksing. Oh, Lord. Patricia Arkzinski. Zinski. Patricia Arkzinski. Patricia Arkzinski. Patricia Arkzinski. Tonya. Learning from mistakes is important, but don't you prefer to learn from the painful mistakes of others? I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that looks for valuable lessons from great crimes and disasters of the past. You'll fly in a doomed airliner hijacked by idiots. Attend the trial of the art forger who fooled the Nazis, witness the world's worst bank robbery, and uncover the deeds of a doctor who paid friendly house calls to his patients while really planning their murders. The series stars Jeffrey Wright, Helena Bonham Carter, and Malcolm Gladwell. Ah, Tim, what a sweet thing to say. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. To subscribe, head to the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.